Hello and welcome to the EdSurge Podcast, a weekly look at the future of education. I'm Jeff Young, an editor and reporter here at EdSurge. Somewhere in a university lab, a research subject's being slid into a brain scanning device known as an fMRI to try to better understand how humans learn and retain information. These machines are really loud, as it turns out, since they're firing rapid pulses of electricity to create a picture of brain activity. Actually, there's a slew of research like this all around the world that's taking off. And in recent years, more of the findings from these research projects are making their way onto campuses in the form of new teaching practices. That has our guest today excited about the possibilities for colleges to make wide-scale improvements in how they teach. From a teaching and learning perspective, this is a golden age. We know more about how people learn than we ever have in the past. That's Matthew Raskoff, Associate Vice Provost for Digital Education and Innovation at Duke University. He's become a leading voice in college innovation efforts, and his team has put out a series of tools to help professors bring these findings from learning science to their classrooms. And many of the tools have been released as open source offerings that any college can use for free. Raskoff also sees big changes coming in online education, especially at the graduate level. And he admits that there's no guarantee that big name institutions like Duke will continue to be the top players in higher ed as it moves online. I sat down with Raskoff last month at a conference of campus innovators known as Hale, which was held at Southern New Hampshire University. He painted a picture of where he sees this campus innovation going, and he talked about how these new digital tools can navigate issues around protecting student privacy and avoiding algorithmic bias. Here are highlights of that conversation. Um, so I wanted to talk about um, leafy campuses or even online campuses or or what's going on in kind of change in, in campuses these days. You've been involved with academic innovation for a little while now. Um, I guess I guess one of the things I'm curious about is whether in those and you can remind me how many years, but in those years, whether you feel like there has been more of a kind of a acceptance around the idea even of like, you know, even at a place like Duke and maybe some other places there might even be, maybe not Duke, I'll accept Duke, but like at some universities, there might've even been a, do universities even need to, to innovate or change because they've been around a long time and people are, you know, people still go to them. They're, they're sort of also said to be slow to change. Yeah, I, I think we have, turned a corner to some extent. I see this in my day-to-day work when faculty and administrators come to us with project ideas that I think might have been seen as a little bit out there a few years ago. And it's not us necessarily pitching or pushing people to join us in things that we're trying to lead. We're getting a lot more inbound interest from you know faculty and administrators who want to do projects that they're motivated to do and they're looking for help and support and inspiration and partnership and experience that comes from our team. So I feel like we've shifted from a mode of trying to bring people along with us to trying to keep up with some of the demand, which is a wonderful problem for a team like Learning Innovation to have. And so I see that on campus. I also see it in the broader discussions of higher ed. We're here at Southern New Hampshire University and just got to hear, you know, Paula Blanc and Michael Horn talking about some of the transformations that are happening in the sector. And it does seem like there's an exciting time around us. There's an exciting set of changes and movement that's going on around us. And it is very stressful on leaders and institutions, you know, as we're clearly experiencing this moment of change. But it also means there's a lot of opportunity and that you see that in the private sector, in all of the startups that are being funded to build new models. Um, you see that in the public sector, in 
you know, institutions that are just launching programs like Louisiana State University, Sasha Thackenberry, my colleague who actually trained here, worked here for several years, launching dozens of new programs with the support of faculty and administration there. And you see it in, you know, nonprofit uh, universities like Duke and our peer institutions where, like I said, there's just this new motivation and support and collegiality and collaboration that doesn't require any teeth pulling. It's really much more about people coming to us and looking for collaboration and partnership. So what's an example? I'm curious, what's an example of one of those inbound requests, right? That a university, that a faculty wasn't sort of, you know, asked to do, but is, is coming to you and, and saying as your, or your center and saying, you know, we want to do this. So they come in many varieties and as many varieties as there are faculty. And one thing that we're seeing, I think, is a move from what I call the early adopter faculty who were our mainstream for years, those who were inherently intrinsically interested in the use of technology in the classroom. And we might support them in, you know, providing, you know, iPods or later iPads to classes to support some experiment that an individual might want to do. The new pattern is we now have associate deans and deans, leaders of schools who are in positions of power, who are shaping the strategies of schools coming to us and saying, can you help us launch a new hybrid or online program? Can you help us figure out an alumni engagement strategy that uses learning as a means of keeping our alumni engaged wherever they are throughout their lives? And that's a shift, I think, from the early adopter into the mainstream and a shift from individuals to the core strategic goals of the leaders of our schools, the deans. And I think that that's a real signal of the adoption curve and our moving through into the kind of the middle of the curve, the, the mainstream adoption. What you're saying kind of goes against people's perception, it seems to me, of higher ed as like this place that's not changing. There is an incredible mismatch, I think, in the rhetoric about higher education that you read about in the newspapers and the actual change that I see happening every day inside institutions. And it's actually one of the most frustrating things for me to read, you know, an editorial in a newspaper or whatever newspaper it is. It's sort of, sort of the consensus view of like journalism. And it's also both from the left and the right right now. And I, I see what's happening on the ground and it, and, and on the ground, you can also see kind of the pipeline of programs that are going to be launched in a few years. And, you know, that's very motivating and very exciting. And then you pick up the newspaper and it's such a doom and gloom story about higher education. I think we're doing such a bad job of kind of telling our story right now. There are definitely some necessary reforms. And don't get me wrong, like I think some big changes are necessary, especially in like the education finance system. But from a teaching and learning perspective, this is a golden age. We know more about how people learn than we ever have in the past. There's more you know, opportunities and products and services to translate that knowledge about how people learn into new learning opportunities that are flexible, that are you know, global, that are you know, serve different kinds of learners than we ever have in the past with different kinds of credentials and different learning experiences. Like, there, there's just a, like a flowering of innovation that I see happening as an insider in this field. And, you know, I love it. I love working in this field as a result. And, you know, I, I wish the broader public and the broader community could see a little bit of that world, that insider perspective. Could you paint a picture of what you see this um, broadly, right? This is not like the individual, you know, history prof- professors project necessarily, but what it, you, some of these programs you're alluding to, 
what do you what will this look like this this new kind of exciting innovation world that you see um, blooming? I mean, one perspective that we bring comes from what we call educational research and development, and the idea there is that we learn in labs valuable information, valuable knowledge about you know how our brains work, how uh, learners work in communities and in social contexts, and we can translate that knowledge into new kinds of learning experiences, new designs that um, you know benefit from what we know about who we are at the ver- fundamental level. And there's just so much like new knowledge that is being created on a weekly basis from, for example, like the fMRI. And, you know, brain neuroscience, the science of like how people learn from the biological perspective that can be applied readily into the classroom. So it's a whole body of research that is kind of making progress on a weekly basis that we can translate with the right system in place to take those discoveries and turn them into, you know, applicable classroom relevant, usable strategies. And like, that's the kind of translational challenge that we face in education, where we need to take those discoveries that are, you know, being published in the journals, and turn them into, you know, products that build on them services that build on them supports for faculty that use that knowledge, and then see how does that play out in the classroom and test that. And I think I see this kind of um, more data driven, more evidence based approach taking off that translates that basic science into classroom interventions and educational reforms. That to me is one of the most exciting areas of innovation and sort of sources of innovation that is a systemic source that is an ongoing source and scientists are going to keep pushing that endless frontier of discovery, not just of course in neuroscience, that's just an example. Behavioral science and behavioral economics has so much to offer in, you know, understanding how people act and how we can shape how they act. And, you know, there's a whole body of research in behavioral economics that I think has application in education. And we're just beginning to scratch the surface of that. Now, just to ground it a little bit, um, I'd be curious, like, what? give me an, ex- an example of either something coming out of that learning science, in which we've written a lot about as well, or... Um, or the, what this new online world would look like to, from a student's perspective, say, right? Like, what is it? What do you think this will mean for students when some of these kind of applied research gets in in the classroom sure. and some of these programs come online? So we have an R and D project at Duke called Nudge, which uses one of the earliest findings in learning science called the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, and it applies it to use a text based system to help students improve retention of their knowledge. The Ebbinghaus forgetting curve basically showed that people forget things on a predictable basis and a predictable curve. And if you can remind them of things that they learned um, at specific points in that forgetting curve, you can help lock in their knowledge for the longer term. And what we built was basically a system for programming text message formative assessments that just ask a quick question about something you learned in class at a specific amount of time after the class. And we now have research that shows that students improve their performance in a class using a rigorous methodology by several percentage points um, just using this intervention. So we had a group of students who are in it, a group of students who are not in it, and a very simple, very low-cost text-based intervention that applies the Ebbinghaus forgetting curve idea, you know, a hundred-year-old learning science discovery with a modern communications technology 
gave us kind of free learning benefits for our students or almost free learning benefits from our students. That's open source technology that we built at Duke. I just want to say it almost sounds like quizzes then are going to be every time, every, anytime, anywhere. But, but I guess you're saying this helps learners. <laughs> it's not a quiz. There's no grade. And you don't even have to get the answer right or wrong. It doesn't actually matter if you get the answer right or wrong from the perspective of the benefits, the learning benefits. It's just the, the jogging of your memory that helps lock in that knowledge into your brain and code it into your brain. So that's actually pretty remarkable, too, that you don't need to grade it. And in fact, there's no point in grading something like that. So it's, it's not a quiz in the sense of we're trying to slot you into the hierarchy. It's more about applying the learning science to help our students retain more of their knowledge and get more you know, learning, learning benefits. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, you know, applying learning science and you know, the, the grading world is not necessarily the most evidence-based part of the education system. <laughs> okay. But, um, I was saying, so what else I, you, you were about to say something else you were excited about and didn't interrupt you. Um, we have a lot of open source projects at Duke, you know, part of our approach as a team is that, you know, we want our, the technology that we build to represent our educational values. And open source to me is the way of disseminating, diffusing technological innovations that is closest to the way that educational institutions should think about how they produce and share knowledge. So just as a scholar is, you know, when they discover something in a lab or when they write a book, you know, their interests are getting the most people to read that and getting the most people to apply it and then to build on that knowledge. And we bring that approach into the technology that we build. So we do a lot of open source development. And we have a project called Muser, which is an open source project that was developed with a faculty member at Duke, Dr. Sheila Patek. And she identified this challenge that undergraduate research opportunities disproportionately went to students who came into college with a lot of social capital. They are the ones who knew what office hours was. They were the ones who knew to knock on a professor's door to get a lab opportunity, for example. And she built this intervention, this technology platform that is meant as an equity solution that brings research opportunities to undergraduates across the socioeconomic spectrum, no matter how much social capital you enter with. And the premise of this technology is that you apply for undergraduate research opportunities blind. The instructor, the lab assistant, the PI, whoever is the mentor in the lab doesn't see your name, they don't see your ethnicity, they don't see your gender. You just apply on the basis of your interest. And then only later on in the process is your identity revealed. And you know what she's found is that you can reduce a lot of the implicit bias that's built into this process by batch processing students in a cohort. So it's not just whoever happens to come by at this time and sure, I'll give them a job. It's specific times of the year and you know predictable cohorts. So the, the, the lab mentors post projects at a specific time on a deadline and then you know, the undergraduates apply in a particular deadline. And we rebuilt the technology and marketed this program more heavily this year. We've now open sourced it. And we've now doubled the number of um, students that we're placing in undergraduate research opportunities. I think in our last cohort, we had um, 83 projects posted and several hundred students applying for research opportunities. And that to me is going to be the part of undergraduate education that is undisruptable. It's fundamentally place-based. It's based on these relationships that students develop with, 
you know, a, a mentor in the lab. It doesn't have to be a professor. It can be a postdoc in the lab, somebody who supports them and takes an interest in their development and lets them, you know, do some of the research that happens in a research university. It's part of what makes being at a place like Duke so distinctive. We should share that benefit with a wider community, with as many students who want to do it as possible. That's an example of like how we're trying to kind of represent our values and technology and then use open source to share that with a wider world. Muser is the project. Muser.duke.edu if people want to look it up. Yeah, so it seems like we'll have to, um, th that there's a lot going on in, in the output that you're actually producing for for the software side. But I'm also curious, you mentioned online programs. Mm -hmm. And I, I know you've been involved with, with online instruction. And one of the things that it seems like, you know, one of the big, things people talk about now is that the number of broadly in higher ed, the number of campus students is somewhat challenged by the demographical changes. Mm -hmm. And yet online seems to be growing for a lot of institutions mm -hmm. more. And mm -hmm. so it's an area of growth. Um, and yet we have all these online programs starting and not all of them, you know, do well off. The, and, and I guess there's a chance, it seems to me that things could get crowded in certain disciplines in, in these online programs. Where do you see an institution like Duke fitting into this kind of growing world of, of kind of competition for online students? Um, it's a good question. And to be very honest, we're trying to figure out the answer to that. I'm not sure there's necessarily, you know, a Duke wide answer. I think it's going to be, it's going to vary to some extent by the schools within Duke. Duke has 10 schools and, you know, they have their own audiences, their own disciplines, their own student populations. And, you know, part of how I see my role as a, an administrator is to help the faculty and leaders of those schools to make good decisions about what those their school strategies should be. So, you know, that's Duke's strategy is to help the schools make good strategies, make make good decisions. But, you know, broadly speaking, you know, professional learning is moving online. The mass the professional terminal masters market is moving online, including at the elite selective university level and in a few decades from now by far the majority of master's education is going to be online. I'm convinced of that. The question is who is going to provide it and what is that going to mean and how long is it going to take and what are the delivery and what's the technology and all the learning experiences. Like, It's going to be mediated by technology to some extent. It may mean you know, a lot of hybrid programs. When I say online, I mean in the, most, in the broadest possible sense, including hybrids, including residencies, but mediated by technology in a significant way, in a majority way. Um, I think our kind of distinctive, um, you know, flavor of this is going to be predicated on a stackable strategy. So we're a very significant player in the open course ecosystem in Coursera. Um, we've built, you know, nearly 60 open courses, five specializations, which are Coursera uh, certificate programs. And our belief is that every professional degree program is going to have a stackable pathway into it. And the new method of recruiting professional students into master's programs and other professional programs is going to be through open courses that can be enrolled by anyone that allow a learner to sample the learning experience before they commit any tuition to the program and allow an admissions officer or admissions committee some insight into who you are and what you can do as a student beyond the GRE or GMAT or the other you know, so-so predictors of performance in graduate school. And my view is that that stackable pathway into professional education is better for learners and better for institutions 
because it allows learners to kind of try before they buy and to always have some pathway into a more significant credential from the course into the certificate, from the certificate into the degree. And they can leave at any point that their learning needs are met and come back. And there's always some way to articulate the learning they've already done into some more significant credential for them. And at the same time, we can uncover you know, learners and, you know, generate leads in the jargon of the industry in a way that's much more efficient, that's much more in line with our values than buying a lot of ads or doing a lot of search engine optimization, which is typically how the kind of for-profit marketing industry um, sells higher ed to unsuspecting learners. Um, and sure. you need to get away from that, I think. And, and using open learning as a way to you know, offer opportunities for discovering, you know, credentials and discovering degrees that are life transformative, even if those open courses on their own are not, if they are part of the pathway into something that transforms your life, that's, I think, that's something that we can do that not everybody else can, just because we're at the 6 million learner mark in our open course enrollments. We're a big player in that ecosystem, and we can, you know, translate that you know, learning community into, you know, pathways for learners into our degree programs. No, that obviously it sounds like, you know, Duke is, is kind of a head start in the area or has done a lot of, of work in creating these online courses and paths and as you said, online certificate programs. Um, but in a way, this online world, it certainly doesn't, doesn't follow that the traditional winners and highly ranked selective schools will win in the online game just because they were the winners in this or that they're they're the top ranked in the in the traditional right yes i don't take our success for granted for the least i think we need to be um you know very sensitive to how learners needs are changing and we need to pay really close attention to you know the evolving market for skills and you know what employers tell us they need from our graduates, what learners themselves are telling us, what our faculty are seeing around the corner of the sectors and the courses and the you know subjects that they teach. And you know part of my team's role is to be the kind of voice of the learners and the voice of the not yet learners or the learners who don't yet exist, who are not yet part of our population and to, represent those interests and those needs and design programs that address those needs. Um, institutions can sometimes be you know, very supply-driven places. Like, we know what we do well. We know what we have expertise in. Why not just launch programs and the things that we know how to do? And we can just do more of those things. And I don't think that's a recipe for long-term success. You can't just bet on doing the thing that we know how to do. Because maybe the thing that we know how to do is not what the world needs from us the most. So I think, you know, I see our role as kind of being the brokers between the supply of our expertise and our knowledge and our frameworks and our faculty and the demand of what learners need, what employers need, what the world needs, and how skills are changing as part of that, what habits of mind are needed in order to succeed, how to be an effective citizen in the 21st century. All these things are evolving and we as a team, the learning innovation team, kind of sit in the middle of the supply and the demand. And you know, our role is to kind of be the brokers. And I think we get a win for the long term when we match that supply and the demand. And those curves cross, and that's when you get something really successful. Are you concerned at all? Um, I know a lot of people right now are, you know, raising questions about a lot of 
parts of technology in our lives and our society, right? These broader questions about everything from kind of the use of data to, you know, algorithms and, and, and potential biases. And, and, then, and so these are kind of broader framework, but people are sort of in a more skeptical bent, I think, in mm -hmm. some ways. There's more of a skeptical bent these days with around tech. Mm -hmm. And I guess there are questions that have been raised even about how this might apply to, you know, online courses or even some of the, the kind of learning science interventions you mm -hmm. mentioned, um, potential for, you know, unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you think about those issues as you develop some of these um, tools? And and how do you, you know, how do you work, you know, work against those kinds of worst case scenarios? Yeah, I think it's a very important question to be raising. And I think the whole sector, to some extent, is dealing with these questions. And, you know, technology, broadly speaking, but especially educational technology, which has a much higher standard, not least because there's a law, FERPA, which requires us to protect student data in particular ways. But I think there's also just a higher ethical standard that people expect from educational institutions that they don't necessarily expect from your average app. Um, and we want to fulfill those expectations and exceed those expectations. So we have a group at Duke that actually came out of our Bass Connections uh, program, an interdisciplinary group that's focused on ethical AI. And it brings together students and scholars from philosophy um, and from technology and from design and from law and public policy. And um, they did a panel last year at our Festival of Learning, the Next Ed Festival of Learning, that was one of the best attended events we've ever done. There's clear interest in this issue among our students and our, like, and so, so I don't know if we know the right answer. I think we're you know, trying to understand like what are the guardrails that we need to put in place um, in terms of like algorithmic bias and protecting students from algorithmic bias, certainly protecting student data and like setting a high standard of protecting student data that probably goes beyond FERPA, which is you know, now a few decades old and doesn't necessarily take into account all the ways that you know, data could be abused. And, um, but you know, within institutions and outside, you know, the, the um, use of um, student images for AI image research was pretty troubling um, without consent. Um, so, you know, IRBs are trying to catch up to some extent with like the technology, which is moving very quickly and figuring out how to do it. But um, I, I don't think it's a simple like private sector versus public sector thing. Like there's ethical players in the private sector and there are unethical players in the public sector. And there, there's no easy proxy that way. You know, part of what we try to do is like work with partners and vendors who we very carefully um, that we do a rigorous security review of any vendor that we work with, like a 30-page survey that they fill out that maps absolutely every process that they have in order to protect our data. Um, and we put a lot of thought into these processes. It's interesting to see that that kind of ground grassroots interest in these issues around around ethics and around um you know, getting it right, I suppose you could say, on, on some of these issues around tech. Absolutely. I mean, any student who's going to work in tech has to contend with these issues. It's remarkable to me that, like, questions like, like the trolley car problem in, you know, autonomous cars, like, in philosophy, that's like an intro course level question. You, le le you learn that in, like, the intro to ethics. That's, that's baby steps in, you know, in, in the philosophy major. And that's, like, 
cutting edge advanced thinking in Silicon Valley. It's it's amazing how you know there's again it's like one of those mismatches, and there's so much need for some like like professional humanities thinking in the world of tech. Um, I think now, I mean, some of that is being mitigated. I heard recently that Google's AI effort now has like a hundred professional ethicists working there. Um, I don't know if that's true, but there's now a recognition that we need people who have these broad skill sets from the liberal arts and from STEM, and we need them to work together if we're going to solve problems like algorithmic bias, because the trolley car problem is tractable, but you need the tools of philosophy in order to make any progress with it. And just the tools of engineering and coding are not going to bear fruit in answering philosophical dilemmas like that one. Well, I think I'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you for having me. This has been the EdSurge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations and stories like this one about how education is changing. If you don't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you listen. That way you can make sure to catch our new episodes every Tuesday. If you like the show, please take a moment to give us a rating or review, which helps others find us. And thanks to Remake Health's YouTube channel for the sounds of an fMRI machine. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week for more on the future of learning. Thanks for listening.